Welcome to the Project Zion podcast. This podcast explores the unique spiritual and theological gifts Community of Christ offers for today's world. Welcome to Project Zion. This is Cup of Joe, where we explore restoration history, and I'm your host today, Karen Peter. Our guest is David Brock. David served Community of Christ and actually continues to serve Community of Christ, but in your life's work, served Community of Christ in many places around the world as a missionary, a president of 70, an apostle, and as the presiding evangelist. Dave has a Master of Arts in Religion. Dave has taught at the Community of Christ Seminary in both mission and other topics. Dave is a lover of words. I know this because he used that phrase one time to me, and we might simply say he is a poet. So welcome, David. Thank you. Thanks, Karen. Good to be here. Well, it's so good to have you here. We're going to talk a little bit today about your lecture that was one of the lectures in the Historic Sites Foundation Summer Series, and yours was titled Life and Legacy of Edward Ellsworth Guy. Smoke jumper and humanitarian, which captures one's imagination right off the bat. So, Ed Guy was a missionary and church planter in Mexico, Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, uh, perhaps other places, we'll learn. But he was much more than that. So, if you could introduce us a little bit to Ed, who was he? Where's he from? And why did you present a lecture about him? Okay, well, uh, happy to respond to those questions. Um, yeah, let me start with the last part because this this lecture originally grew out of um, our spiritual formation and companioning program in which uh, one of the sessions we spent almost entirely on looking at Christian mystics through the years and uh, in some ways trying to express uh, the value and importance of mystics and to... Uh, to do away with a lot of the misunderstandings about what a Christian mystic is. But as we were looking at people like St. John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila and Henry Now and, and uh, Meister Eckhart and on and on it goes, we decided that, you know, there, there have to be mystics in our own faith movement. And actually in, in this huge series of Christian mystics, Joseph Smith is one of the volumes. So we do have our mystic, uh, tradition in in the community of Christ and in the restoration movement. So uh, my my sense was that though Ed is primarily known as being a missionary, being a fighter for uh, justice, uh, standing up for the cause of the poor, etc., that that was really born out of his own intimate relationship with God or with Jesus. And so that was that was the reason for this this project. So, uh, yeah, I, I kind of d- divide Ed's life into two parts. One is his growing up years, his uh, his educational years, and then his move to the Texas-Mexico border. And for from then and from there, ever after, his, his life was south. It was either in Mexico or Central America, primarily. So a little bit about Ed. Ed was, uh, just to give you a sense of his life, 1934 to 2001, uh, a relatively short life, but definitely fully lived. Uh, He was born in Santa Monica, 
California, but lived in quite a few places because his dad, who was actually uh, English by birth and then moved to Canada as a young man, but became an airline mechanic uh, and uh, spent the rest of his life in the United States. And they moved a lot because uh, he was working for TWA and actually with the government during the war years, uh, during World War II. And so they, they moved from California to Oregon, to Washington, to Washington, D.C., and uh, uh, Kansas City, Missouri, which is actually where his dad met Ed's mom, uh, and they were married uh, there in Kansas City. So, um, that you know, Ed, Ed grew up in quite a few places, has two sisters. Uh, they're both still living. His parents are now both gone. Um, his mom had this this sense of, well, not the sense of, she actually kind of gave Ed to God. She dedicated her son to God and, and uh, to, to God's calling in his life. Uh, and uh, she would say, Hey, it, it took, you know, uh, <laughs> it did she, indeed. She was like a, a good Catholic mom who dedicates her, her son to be a priest or her daughter to be a nun, whatever. Um, his dad uh, was not really a, a believer in sense he didn't he wasn't a member of the church didn't belong and uh he was a he was brilliant he was a mechanic very linear in his uh, approaches and it's sort of like you know to see is to believe kind of thing and his his personality and eds were like diametrically opposed so they didn't frankly get along that well they didn't understand each other and it was only in after eds or in Ed's later years and after his death that his dad realized uh, this is a pretty amazing person. But I'm just going to jump in here and tell you, I met Ed's dad uh, once and, and uh, they, they had told me that recently they had heard him calling and he had been up in a tree sawing branches and he got somehow turned upside down. And so he was, he had his knees locked around a branch and he was hanging down and he couldn't get down. And so he's out there yelling. But anyway, we were all laughing about that as he was showing me a Rolls Royce, which he had put together uh, piece by piece. He'd had it shipped over from England part by part. And he reassembled that Rolls Royce. It was out in his garage there in, in Bow, Washington, near Samish Island, or part of Samish Island. And uh, just real practical about it. And it was pristine, absolutely beautiful. Uh, that's that's the kind of guy he was. Um, so anyway, that's, that's an aside. You can cut that part out. Um, well, no, it's fascinating because it really shows how very different his son was from him. And, yeah. and what that, how that dynamic of that relationship played then into Ed's life later. Yeah, it really yeah. did. Uh, yeah, you know, Ed was the absolute opposite of linear. So, and we'll get to that. <laughs> uh, but uh, so, just a little bit about you know high school. Uh, he he wasn't really involved in in uh, sports or team sports, but he was very active in FFA. So he 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 enjoyed agricultural kinds of things, and he actually worked on a dairy. Uh, and um, after high school, however, he decided to go to Graceland College because that's what church, good church boys and girls did, particularly in those days. But after the first year, probably after the first few weeks or semester, he he realized this is not for me. This higher education, I'm not I'm not into that right now. So after the first year, he left and decided to join the army. So 
He joined the Army, served there for two years. Most of his time was in Fort Sill, Oklahoma. And then he decided, well, you know, let me try this, this college thing again. So he went out to Central Washington, finished degree, his degree, and I'm not sure what that was in. But then he went on to the University of Missouri at Columbia and finished a master's degree in social work. And uh, during that time, he that was like the civil rights movement. And so there was a lot going on, particularly in Kansas City and the African-American community. So Ed did quite a bit of his uh, practice of, of social work in that area. So he he got to know a lot of the leaders of the, the civil rights movement and got pretty engaged in those kind of things. And then after his, his uh, graduation, he'd always had a sense of call to uh, the peoples of the Book of Mormon. Uh, and his sense was, you know, Mexico and South. So he went down along the border where we had missionary families living primarily on the North American side, just across the border, like in Brownsville or McAllen. Uh, and then they were planting congregations in like Reynosa and Matamoros. And so Ed uh, kind of worked as a volunteer there, began to learn Spanish. And as uh, this was no surprise, Ed started working with uh, youth gangs there. And when I first went to Mexico in 1974, the end of 1974, one of those former gang members uh, was studying in Saltillo, Mexico, where I, I went to work and study. That's another thing. But uh, uh, Guadalupe had been uh, taken out of, I mean, Ed had saved him from gang life. He joined the church and came to Saltillo to go to, to university. So uh, right from the beginning of his work in, in uh, Latin America or, you know, Mexico and Latin America, that's, that's the kind of thing he was engaged in. So then um, my aunt and uncle actually had started a medical mission in Honduras back in the late 50s, which is known as La Buena Fe. And uh, that's, that's where the church really got started in Central America and there were opportunities to to go and work there. And so Ed went to La Buena Fe and kind of on his own. This wasn't church sponsored in those days. He began to work uh, in in La Buena Fe. And uh, that was primarily work with the, the poorest of the poor, the poor farmers. Uh, and uh, that's when he began to really do, I think, some groundbreaking work in what does it mean to plant the gospel among uh, the poorest in our world uh, in a way that honors them, that learns from them. A lot of principles that you now find in things like you know, groups like Outreach International and others were things that Ed was kind of testing out. And so he, uh, he did some writing about that uh, and uh, some journaling and that kind of thing. And then it's just fascinating to hear. Here are some principles that that I think matter for doing, uh, for honoring Christ in the lives of other people, and it, it was uh, not the kind that was always well accepted by, frankly, some of our North American missionaries or people who were kind of taking charge of La Buena Fe. And I'm not, I'm not putting blame or or saying who was right or who was wrong, but it it caused some some conflict and perception. But I think over the years we would say hey, Ed was doing some groundbreaking work that we now just kind of take for granted in the ways that we uh, we indigenized and uh, and do do mission, as I, as I guess I would say it. So Ed spent quite a few years in, in Honduras. 
And then, as uh, most of you know, late 70s, early 80s, and the civil, there was a lot of civil conflict in Guatemala and in uh, El Salvador. And so we uh, had an opportunity to plant the church in El Salvador through some uh, Mormons who were inquiring about uh, our church. So Ed became kind of the primary uh, missionary to go and really help uh, develop leaders and plant the church in El Salvador. And it was, of course, during that time that the uh, the civil war was happening and it it was terrible. Uh, I don't have to, to say that to folk, but it, so Ed actually began to work with um, uh, folk who were targeted for killing and, and in some ways uh, kind of did his own little underground railroad, you know, to get people to Canada and that kind of thing. So, I'll so stop let's, for a second. let's, um, let's explore that just a little bit because yeah. some of our listener base might be young enough that they are not aware of what took place in Central America and El Salvador and other places. So when you talk about civil unrest, even just saying it was a terrible civil war, it doesn't even begin to cover what took place. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, the, you know, what people may be aware is uh, uh, a, a person who's who's now considered a martyr uh, Oscar Romero uh, was uh, a priest there and had, had actually begun as a fairly conservative, not engaged in society kind of person, but he began to see all the injustices that were happening in El Salvador, began to speak out. And because he spoke out, uh, frankly, the government soldiers killed him. And uh, during that same time, uh, six Jesuit priests were, were murdered for, for similar kinds of reasons because they were standing up for the poor in the nation and those who were marginalized. Uh, so that kind of thing was going on even all around Ed. In fact, he could have easily been targeted. So it was a terrible time and, uh, and led to some things I'll talk about maybe a little later about him working with the uh, families of those who were disappeared in El Salvador and, in Guatemala, but you're right, Karen. It was it was a horrendous time, brutal, uh, costly. Well, let's go ahead and 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 move to to Ed's experience there because he had gone because of to Central America because of the mission, the medical mission that mm-hmm. was there, but his own background with the. In- uh, uh, civil rights movement, the injustices that he dealt with at the border when he first moved there, that led him directly into the middle of this. So let's talk about that help, helping get people to safety aspect of yeah. Let's talk about what that looked like. Okay. Well, I, yeah, and I might preface that just a little bit by saying, I think from my understandings of Ed, even as a child, he, uh, you know, that it's uh, justice, you know, uh, people deserve to, to, to have justice. And he could get really angry if he didn't get his own justice as a child. But later on, it was like for others. And so and then there was there was a spirit of how do I say I want to say adventure in it like it, his years as a smoke jumper are fascinating. Uh, and there's actually been uh, like. A, a fairly long article written by one of his smoke jumping buddies 
about uh, how much Ed enjoyed that and then work, working on a fishing boat up in Alaska and those kind of things. So he was These are high risk behaviors. Yeah. High risk kind of stuff. Uh, but but undergirded with that sense of what's right and what's just for people. And if they don't get their justice, then it, it made him angry and it made him want to fight in the proper sense. And so to get to your, to your point, I'll I'll wander around a little bit, but I I just want to tell you an experience I had where some of us went to um, a village on the edge of uh, San Salvador and just met some folk who Ed had brought into the church. And as I recall, I'm pretty sure Ed was not with us that day. And so we're sitting around talking, and they're beginning to tell all these stories about what Ed did for them during the conflict and how he was just fearless because, you know, the war was going on. And so Ed would would either negotiate with the soldiers or with the rebels uh, to get past them with food to take it to people in this village. And uh, and so they would talk about how he risks his life with this. And then one of the, the most famous story, I mean, I just sat there with my mouth open that day, just listened to all the stories about things Ed did during that time. But one of them, and Ed actually told me this one too, but others others corroborated. So Ed is in one of those situations where he's he's between the rebels and the the uh, the army and they're fighting it out. They're shooting at each other. And uh, all of a sudden, uh, I think, I think a, a rebel's arms, his, his rifle jammed and a, a soldier was going to shoot him. And Ed stepped out into the street and said uh, something to the effect that uh, by, by the power of God, do not shoot that man, you know, or something like that. And uh, the guy just turned and ran. And, you know, so Ed basically saved, saved the life of the other man. But in, in uh, we, we had a little, it wasn't a church building, but a, a home where our, our new congregation met near the Mariona prison uh, in San Salvador or just outside. And that's where um, the army and, and I don't want to paint this all as army bad, rebels good. I mean, it was just a real mix. But uh, but if you had to choose, that's the way you'd choose. Um, and but but they would come and and they would take prisoners there and just kill them outside the prison. And so sometimes uh, conflict would start. And so Ed would talk about times when they're all lying on the floor of this house uh, during worship experience, and Ed taught them to say. Psalm 91. And so they would they would repeat Psalm 91 lying on the floor of the house while bullets came through. Or uh, one time uh, a soldier came while they were in worship and just with his gun stood at the back of the, the worship. And, and uh, you know, they were all scared to death. They said, well, we'll just keep worshiping. We'll just keep worshiping. So and they prayed for the soldier and they prayed for the war and they prayed for the rebels and he finally left, but it was a very tense moment. So that was the kind of circumstance in which Ed was working and our, our members were living, but to get now to get to your point. And so it, uh, in, in his work with like a pharmacist and uh, a doctor and some others, there was recognition that as they helped the rebels, then they were targeted uh, because they were, they were, you know, giving medical treatment to, to uh, these folk. And so, Ed began to work with others 
and uh, help to get some of those folk out of the country. The U.S. was not uh, very good about receiving folk in those days, so they get them through the U.S. to Canada or around the U.S. to Canada. So there were literally several people, I don't know how many, but that Ed was involved in helping save their lives during that time. Um, so by the time I by the time I got there, the war had pretty well finished. But, you know, the lack of trust and the uh, the retribution and those kind of things were still going on. And then what what was also happening is as people who were who were refugees were returning from Chicago or L.A. or Miami or, you know, some of the cities where they had gone during the war came back home. Well, a lot of the the youth were now part of gangs and involved in the drug trade. And so they brought terrible chaos and violence back to this city that this country that doesn't have a good police force, you know, the things, systems weren't working. And so those gangs would just uh, cause all kind of havoc, not only in the city, but in the smaller villages where they could go and kind of take over. So it was, it was a really a tough time. And Ed was just in, in the midst of all of that. Um, so that that's kind of that part. But and he also uh, worked with um, uh, what's what's the Canadian uh, Outreach International World, World Accord. Accord. He worked mm-hmm. with World Accord primarily and some with Outreach International to start projects uh, with Marina del Merino uh, out in the, the refugee camps and that kind of thing. So and then be, and then began to get involved with in Guatemala with uh, the those whose families had been disappeared during the civil conflict there so a lot of kind of dangerous uh things he got involved in so that was that's one element of his life but then there's the whole kind of missionary and pastoral role yeah. as well that, missionary and pastoral and mystic so you mentioned that earlier my um my favorite quote from your lecture referred to his memorial service. I think it was his brother-in-law was talking about him and said that Ed was a poster child for the dangers of caffeine. And I, I immediately felt a kindred spirit with Ed's spirit there um, being a similar person. However, Ed's energy is what the brother-in-law was referring to. He just had this constant energy that allowed him to be present with people, to be concerned about all people, and this pragmatic slash mystical relationship with God that you mentioned earlier, with that this whole lecture came about because you were talking about mystics in the tradition of the church. And Ed, Ed was very much a mystic, but not in your classic sense. So let's talk about that and... Well, it it does seem appropriate, Karen, that when you're talking uh, about Ed and you're you're also on a podcast called Cup of Joe, that you yeah. make and a, I'm drinking my coffee as we speak. Yeah. A connection with with coffee. <laughs> so, uh, I I'll start with a personal story. I I was in uh, Honduras for their first youth camp in our church back in 1978, January or I think it was January of 78. And uh, at the end of the youth camp, Ed asked if uh, Thad Wilson and I would like to accompany him up the mountain on a Sunday morning really early to El Carreto for worship service. And of course, I, I'd never been to Honduras, and this is the place where my aunt and uncle started things. And so I'm all excited. I'm going, sure, Ed, let's do it. You know, 
uh, sad having lived there and worked there as a nurse for a while, kind of knew, oh my gosh, what are we going to get ourselves into? Well, it was a three hour hike up this mountain and it rained the night before. And so it was like two steps forward and slipped back a step and about three quarters of the way up the mountain. I'm just going, oh, what do, are we going to make this? And anyway, so we get up to El Carreto where our kind of the key family uh, that got the church started there, or we planted through them. Uh, we gathered at their house. It was cold uh, and kind of cloudy because we're way, we're well up into the mountains, and uh, they they were coffee raisers. And so you know they they planted, they harvested, they they roasted, they dried, they all that made their own coffee. And you know I grew up as a a boy who you don't drink coffee. Uh, back in the day and all that. And uh, that was the best cup of coffee I have ever had in my life. And I'm sure part of it was the newness of it and, and uh, how cold I was, but it was freshly brewed coffee right there. But yeah, Ed, uh, I mean, you, well, just all across Latin America, you know, you, you don't live without coffee. Uh, You just don't, that's, that's not an option. And so uh, Ed could drink a lot of coffee and uh, it was a way to, particularly as he got older and began to have uh, congestive heart failure is, is really what the issue primarily was among others. Uh, it would take a little while for him to get rolling in the morning. Um, and uh, coffee was, was salvation. Okay. That's not that's why you asked me the question. No, but no, it's a big part of who he was though. <laughs> oh, so his energy. Inter- yeah. yeah, his energy and the fact that he didn't he doesn't fit into our classical understanding of what a what a Christian mystic is. And yet he he very much was a mystic. Yeah. Well, I think part of it is uh, and, and this was is my my little speech for why mystics matter so much is that, uh, you know, they're they're grounded in this this sense that what matters most and what gives me the energy for the rest of my life in a sense of uh, where I'm called to is an intimate relationship with God. Um, and it's, it's not so much about having these uh, miraculous, you know, appearances or those kind of things. It's just more about the sense of wherever I go and whoever I am uh, it's, it's Christ in me, you know, not me, but Christ in me. And I, I really sense that was, uh, that was the basis of what Ed did and why he did it and what, what empowered him to do it. And because of that, it was because of that, that he, like an Oscar Romero could stand in the breach and say, this is where I stand. This is what Jesus stands for. And, uh, you know, if I have to pay the price, I'll pay the price. Um, so, and so, yeah. So you look at Bonhoeffer or you look at, uh, I'm I'm studying right now uh, Howard Thurman, who was a mystic and a prophet and had huge amounts of influence on Martin Luther King and brought more of that that mystical sense of this is this is God's work. You know, this is this is the journey of the Israelites through the desert to the promised land. Um, So he had a lot of impact on King. So I, I that's that's why Ed is both mystic and prophet and pastor and social justice advocate and um it's 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 not unlike um uh who was it that started the catholic worker movement you know um what's her name mary anyway I'll, I'll, uh, dorothy day uh, 
you know, who was also, we, we know her mostly as, as a, a prophetic voice, a social justice voice, but she would say first and foremost, she's, uh, she's a daughter of God. She's a sister of Jesus. You know, that's, that's what empowered her. So Ed's life, when you kind of track his behaviors with his background, um, with his education, he didn't live in the academia of what it meant to be uh, a disciple if you put it in religious context, in Christian context, or um, in the helping profession, if you will, as a social worker. But he actually, he understood himself, if I follow your descriptions of him as just living in God's presence. So he didn't live in the academia of it. He considered himself very much present with God wherever he was. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think that says, it, that says it well. And it... Um... You know, at times you could you could see the benefit of his of his master's degree in social work. Uh, so, like, he, you know, he'd read the books and that kind of thing. Sure. But but day to day, it was, uh, you're, you know, you're following Jesus and you're trying to represent Jesus in the best way you can. And so just see if I can exemplify that a little bit in his life. It's like. You know, I, I've met some pretty amazing people in my life, um, but I don't know that I've ever met a person who upheld the worth of another human soul to the breadth and depth that Ed did. Uh, and it, it, it's it's in the same way that, you know, he, he would treat the, the president of a country or the president of our church the same way as he would treat uh, literally a person who he took out of the gutter, who was sniffing glue, a, a young woman and, and dying and spent years uh, just nurturing her and going back out to the street to take her out of one more uh, place of death until she finally uh, uh, could, could stop the addiction and regain her health. And, and Ed would probably give her more time than he would give the, president of the church because that's you know you you stand on the side of the the poor and suffering so the but the thing the thing is that could just drive you nuts was probably because G, because he was a whole lot more like Jesus than most of us you could not plan a day you know it's like the night before you might say okay tomorrow we're going to go to this government office and then we're going to visit these people in this village and then we're going to have this worship service at this time. And, and Ed would agree to all that. And then the next day, one, as he got older, it was, it took him a lot longer to get, get going just because he was ill. Uh, but then when you finally got started, you might step outside the door and somebody would be there with a need or he'd see a conflict. And so your day shot, you know, it's like, okay, so that government meeting we were going to have Ed, or uh, that taxi ride that we were going to take to the village next over, he might have two people with him who were just, he, he'd say, we'd say, Ed, we got one taxi. We can't fit all these people in here. We've got this meeting in 30 minutes. We're already late. And he would say, well, let them go in my place and I'll catch a bus and I'll meet you. And of course, two hours later, he'd show up or whatever. But he would say, no, this is a perfect opportunity. They need to see you missionaries. Mm -hmm. uh, headquarters people they need to see you and how you work and what you do and so uh and, and you know i i hate to confess that at times i just go yeah 
come on. And yet after the fact, you know, okay, that's what Jesus probably would have done, you know. <laughs> so, well, if we're honest, Jesus probably annoyed some people as yeah, well. So, so. so you talk about Ed with that. Um, he never married. Never married. Never married. And I think you said he was never on time. Those were, his, yes. those were some of the aspects of him. And that could be difficult for if you had administrative responsibilities for an area in which Ed lived, which you did at different times. But was, he served for decades. Yeah. I mean, he was a, a renegade disciple for decades. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you. I'm not sure how how to say it better. Uh, he really was. Uh, the interesting thing is that after he left Honduras, where the church, you know, when he when he went on to El Salvador, and that's where he El Salvador and Guatemala is where he finished his career and his life. But as as the local ministers in Honduras look back over uh, Ed's legacy there, um, they became much more appreciative to say, you know, Ed taught us this, or Ed would do these kind of things. He, uh -huh. uh, you know, like, you, you, back to the energy question or uh, concept, like Ed, um, he, he might go, let's just, let's make this up, but it's true. He, he would go, uh, arrive late on a Saturday night into, um, San Pedro Sula, where we really didn't have many members because we were a rural church, um, village church, but we got a plant in the city. And uh, so he might preach there in the morning, have lunch with somebody, administer to somebody, baptize somebody, whatever. And then he'd get back to Lake Yehoa, who knows quite how, he might get a bus or he might just hitch a ride or something. And in late afternoon, the the water would get really agitated. Just It seemed to happen every day kind of and he'd row across the lake and uh, get there in time to do an evening service at uh, Orconcitos or El Mogote or whatever, and um, and then s sleep on, on the bench, on these narrow benches in the church, just stay there the night and sleep there the night if there were no other place to go, and then be back at work uh, in, in, the, in helping the farmers or whatever he was doing on Monday morning. And he'd just do that time and time again. And and the local people saw how much energy and time he he gave to that and how he introduced the church and planted the church in places. And uh, the church in Honduras has, has grown well. And, you know, I think I think some of us would, would say, you know, Ed sometimes was um, he was he was he had such a big heart that it, at times rather than uh, teach people how to fish. He would feel so bad about them. He'd go fish for them, so so to speak, you know. And, and rather than uh, than liberate them, well, how do I say that? I mean, he was always liberating them in many ways, but uh, sometimes he just wasn't tough enough to to demand you can do this uh, on your own. Now do it, you know. But um, he just had so much compassion. Yeah. So I was lucky enough to meet Ed a couple of times when I was growing up. You mentioned his parents were up at Bow, Washington, where the church mm -hmm. campground is on Samish Island. And he would come home to visit. And it didn't matter what was happening at the campground. It could be a youth camp in the middle in the middle of a worship service. It could be a women's retreat in the middle of whatever. And he would just show up in the dining hall and everybody would be like, oh, 
Ed's here. And he would sit at the fireplace on the hearth and people would just kind of pull up chairs and he would just start sharing stories. And then he would disappear and it'd be like, oh, where'd Ed go? Well, he's gone again. Yeah. That's just how it was. No, that that very well fits the Ed that I knew. Yeah. I will say here that um, here's kind of a principle that I think is important, for, particularly for those of us in leadership roles. And that is that a person like Ed, who was a maverick or, you know, used a different term, if they don't have an advocate in the system, then everybody loses. Uh, you know, Ed, Ed would have lost some of his abilities to do what he did. But uh, there are two people who I would say really stood in that place for Ed within the church. And one was Lloyd Hirschman, who was the apostle to Latin America and, and made some major adjustments to bring Ed more onto the team. And then Daryl Mink, who was the regional administrator in those days, uh, was very much a colleague and friend of Ed. And and without their support, Ed wouldn't have been able to do what what they did. But but he took them to places they they never would have chosen to go uh, just because of that deep sense of call. You know, you follow Jesus and, um, and well, we'll take care of you. You having been a missionary and a 70, you know that we like to do that to administrators now and then. We like to take I, them into places yeah, they might not want to go. You heard that about 70. Yes, definitely. So Ed um, was one of the first recipients of the church's International Human Rights Award. And uh, you shared that that was in 1994. And that was because he did have this lifelong passion for justice. Anything you want to tell us about that? How did he react to getting that award? Do you know? Oh, I I think uh, I'll start there. I, I think, it, you know, Ed wasn't one to look for accolades ever, and he would shy away from that. But I think that recognition before this community that was his life, you know, that the church was, I mean, it, it was his village. It was where he was nurtured and grew and had his sense of identity. So when the church acknowledged that, I think it, it was huge for him. Um, I mean, he, he wouldn't have told anyone else about it or, you know, lifted that up, but uh, in, in part because he had been, you know, that scripture about how sometimes we were wounded in the house of our friends. Well, Ed had been wounded because kind of like his dad, you know, he just, people didn't get Ed. Uh, and, uh, and when you're, when you're doing prophetic things, you know, ahead of your time kind of things uh, to, to finally be acknowledged for that, I, I guess without making a direct tie, it's like, you know, during the, the years that Martin Luther King was active, a whole lot of people, wanted him out. They wanted him done away with. They wanted him out of power or whatever. They wanted him to quit messing things up and disturbing people and riling up people when things were just fine. Well, now most of us, even if we felt that way back then, now King's wonderful, you know. Well, finally, we we acknowledged uh, that Ed Guy was uh, a unique individual. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I'm not sure quite what to add from what I said before about that, the social justice work, you know, he, he risked his own life to save people during the time of war. He risked a lot to get people to safety uh, in another country. Um, 
And, and then there was just the way you live. You step out the door of the house where he lived. He lived with our, who became our pastor, our local pastor, and walk across the street to the lady who spent 12, 16 hours a day making pupusas and coffee and eggs and, you know, feeding people. And he would just across the street, she valued most. And uh, he'd be there to encourage her and stand up for her and speak for her and take care of that lady who uh, I mentioned who they, he took out of the gutter mm -hmm. and nurtured back to life in, in a real sense until she finally became a mom of a, a sweet little girl. And uh, it was, it was just the way he lived. And then, and then he began to work with this organization called Famdegua, which was uh, Familias de Guatemala, which was really uh, for those who had, had, disappeared you know they'd been murdered a whole village would be murdered and they'd throw everybody down a well and cover the well up and uh so he he was engaged in that in fact that's where he was at that organization in guatemala city the day that he died he had just come out of a meeting there and they had a heart attack on the street and uh and died uh, which is where we would have wanted to be yeah exactly and then you know, it did. Oh gosh, this this is like a movie, but it's not a movie. It should be a movie. So Ed dies on the streets of Guatemala, and, and somehow they got. I don't know if he was with somebody from El Salvador at that time. So the word gets back to El Salvador to our members there, and to some members in in uh, Guatemala. So they gather in Guatemala City to, you know, to, to take the body and to uh, to have a a service. But they have no money, and so they they kind of behind the scenes with one of the workers at um, the funeral home. They said, "What if we just rented a casket for a few hours so we can have this service?" So, so they rent a casket at, for like two hours to have this service, uh, and uh, then you know back goes the casket and uh, some uh, some body is then placed in a casket that they have no idea has been used before, but that, that would, Ed would have gone, yeah, that's what you should have done, you know, pay, uh, pay however many shillings or, or lampitas or whatever it is and pesos and uh, have your service and then don't waste any more money on me. So yeah, uh, a fitting, a fitting memorial, fitting way, Ed. fitting way to honor and end his life. So what would you say would be um, Ed Guy's, from Ed Guy's life, what would you say is most important to remember about him in the life of community of Christ? Well, the, the obvious first one, which, you know, we've already talked a lot about is, but the worth of souls is immeasurable, is great. Uh, you know, God is within every human being would be, uh, kind of the, the centerpiece for me. Um, I, I do think that Ed in his own way was one of those pioneers, if you will, who began to shape a truly an international church where you recognize that you're not taking the gospel to the world, that you are, carrying your your own experience of God into to new places and and a whole lot of your job is to discover 
God who's already present and then show the people, this is, this is what you're giving the world. This, this is your value. You know, these are your gifts. Um, and I, I don't want to put rose cluttered colored glasses on here. I mean, Ed, the first time I met him after I'd had that cup of coffee up in the mountain, we, uh, we went back to La Buena Fe and we stopped at a, a little village on the way and there had been a knife fight at a wedding the night before. And so Ed just stopped there to, to address the violence in this village before it exploded and kept growing, you know? So, uh, that wasn't a perfect place either. There were, there were a lot of difficulties there that he, he would just step into the breach. Uh, so, you know, you know, our calling to peace and reconciliation and healing of the spirit, Ed was living that out in, in the real world there, you know? Um, Very much so. So you have traveled across the globe with your uh, life of ministry in community of Christ. How has Ed Guy's life um, shaped your ministry and your discipleship? Well, um, I, th- I think my, it might be important for me to confess here that I, uh, I, I want to say this carefully, but, but I'm a doubter in the sense that uh, I've got a lot of questions about things. You know, I've been reading the book of Job recently, uh, and it's like, you know, the questions that Job has, sometimes they're my questions like, come on, God, uh, why, you know, my life's okay, but look at all these poor, innocent people who are suffering, or look who's in power now. Good Lord, uh, where are you? Um, but but somehow, Ed, and, and this was true of my Africa experience as well, but Ed, uh, Ed believed. I mean, it, it was like, uh, it was almost a naive faith, you know? It's like, Jesus heals. Well, I can tell you stories where you just go, oh, my goodness. Uh, and uh, I remember one time we got in a difficult situation, and we were complaining, and uh, I won't say other people's names. I'll just say I was complaining, but others were complaining, too. But, uh, <laughs> uh, and Ed just stopped us, and he said, you guys, this is the Lord's work. So we just need to stop here and pray because God answers prayer. And so we're on the side of a mountain pushing a pickup up the up the mountainside. And Ed's telling us to pray, and we didn't want to pray. So we said, you pray, Ed. So, so Ed prayed, and before long, we got to the top of the mountain. We got to safety, and he stopped, and we had to pray again, thanksgiving for God uh, getting us out of that mess. So, so it was like, you know, God was intimate. God is present. And uh, that's, I think, you know, Ed, Ed might have saved my faith at times when I would doubt or struggle. And, you know, I've met a number of other people, particularly in Africa, who I would just think, how could you have hope? How can you believe? Mm -hmm. And yet their testimony was so strong and so authentic that I I think that that keeps me, keeps me going, keeps urging me, nudging me on, turning me towards hope in hopeless situations. So I, I have I have a lot to say of thanks to him. And it's also without being too negative on ourselves. It's also a reminder that, uh, you know, discipleship can be a costly business. 
and uh, and sometimes that's what you get. You know, there's there are crosses, uh, there is suffering. It's not an easy ride, and yet it's 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 the adventure of a lifetime. Um, so Ed, Ed Guy represents all of that. I and hope I never lose it. I think that's a great way to end our conversation about uh, Ed Ellsworth Guy. So I want to thank you, Dave, for sharing about him, what you learned about him, what you knew about him, what you experienced with him. And I want to encourage our Project Sign listeners to go to the Historic Sites Foundation website and watch David's lecture um, in its whole and uh, its entirety. And also the other lectures from the summer series, and you can find all of those at historicsitesfoundation.org. In the meantime, until our next Cup of Joe episode, I'm Karen Peter. This has been part of the Project Zion podcast. Thanks again to David Brock for being our guest, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Project Zion Podcast. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, or whatever podcast streaming service you use, and while you are there, give us a five-star rating. Project Zion Podcast is sponsored by Latter-day Seeker Ministries of Community of Christ. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are of those speaking and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Latter-day Seeker Ministries or Community of Christ. The music has been graciously provided by Dave Hines. 